This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, April 22nd. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Telluride to extend noise curfew, crime up in 2021, listening club heads to dire straits, and a mountain weather forecast. Music in the town of Telluride will soon be allowed to exist, later into the evening. On Tuesday, Telluride Town Council passed an ordinance on first reading to extend the curfew for amplified music later. Under the ordinance, amplified music will be allowed in indoor and outdoor spaces until 9 p.m. on Sunday through Thursday. That is consistent with the previous noise ordinance. However, now on Fridays, Saturdays, and a number of holidays, music will be allowed to play until 11 p.m. When it comes to those holidays, Mayor Delaney Young gives the example of Halloween. Let's say something like Halloween occurs on a Wednesday, that that also could have the extended 11 p.m. amplified noise curfew, so to speak. Under the ordinance, music is allowed to extend to 11 p.m. on Martin Luther King Jr. Eve, Valentine's Day, President's Day Eve, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Memorial Day Eve, Juneteenth, the 4th of July, Labor Day Eve, Halloween, Veterans Day Eve, Thanksgiving, Dia de los Muertos, and New Year's Eve. The reason for all the eves? For instance, Memorial Day Eve. We had talked about you know, Memorial Day falls on a Monday, and we don't want someone to allow, allow them to have noise until 11 o'clock on that Monday, but the Sunday night before, we do. So that's why it, these were defined with Eve instead of day. That's Allie Slayton, assistant town attorney. She adds individuals will be allowed to apply for a noise permit for events that fall outside of the Friday, Saturday holiday curfew. Council did give direction to staff to implement a permit process um, to allow those time limits to be relaxed under certain circumstances. Third, council wanted staff to uh, remove the criminal penalty for a violation of the noise ordinance. She adds while the punishment is moving from criminal to civil, the town is also expanding who can be cited for the offense. We thought it would be a good idea to specifically add into the ordinance that not only a person um, who is emitting the noise or causing the noise could be cited, but also a property owner. And that would help moving forward with uh, determining repeat violators. If someone's just visiting town, renting a house, having a house party, for instance, they might not ever be cited again, but maybe the property owner should be cited. They allowed that to occur. They would then be encouraged to prevent that from happening in the future at their property. Town-sponsored events or those taking place on town property are exempt from the noise curfew. We did that because events that occur more specifically down in town park are already subject to constraints in their agreements to use town park. During public comment, not all were supportive of the change. Arthur Goldberg lives near the Telluride Transfer Warehouse. We have been uh, making comments, writing letters, calling in noise complaints. This is all relative to the transfer warehouse where we live right next door. And instead of being sympathetic to the needs of the community and those of us who are disturbed by loud music emanating from that structure, uh, we are now finding ourselves with the noise ordinance being made more liberal in nearly every sense. While the transfer warehouse has been the site of some concern for neighbors, Mayor Young notes the noise ordinance applies to the entire town. 
Council member Jessie Ray Arguez adds she's sympathetic, but believes Telluride should embrace arts and culture. You know, since the late 70s, Telluride as a community has embraced arts, culture and music. And we have seen several circumstances where businesses who encourage arts, specifically music, be shut down by neighbors. And it, I feel very passionately that community compatibility very much embraces this component of of our community, which is promoting arts, independent arts, and local musicians. So I'm very happy with where it is. Um, I appreciate everybody's feedback, um, but that's where my head is at when it comes to community compatibility. Town Council approved the ordinance to extend the noise curfew on first reading six to one. Council member Adrian Christie was the single no vote. Council still needs to approve the ordinance on second reading before it goes into effect. Crime is up in the town of Telluride. Last year was busy for Marshall's department. Um, our total calls jumped by over 2,000. We had 6,416 calls last year compared to 4,336 the year prior. That's Telluride Chief Marshal Josh Compt providing an update to town council this week. While numbers stay relatively low, when it comes to crime against property, numbers were up in 2021 compared to 2020 for robbery. One case up from zero. Well, that's the first robbery we've had in the last since at least 2017. Burglary at two cases, theft at 64 and auto theft at one were also up. Compt notes a large number of theft comes from bikes being stolen. Do my little shameless plug here. Please register your bikes. A lot of our, our thefts were bike related. <coughs> so if you do register your bikes, it does help us have a fighting chance at least of trying to recover those bikes and get them back to you. Crimes against society, that's disorderly conduct, drug offenses, DUIs, harassment, liquor violations, and trespassing were also up. Our DUIs went up to 14 from six the previous year, um, our highest being in 2017 with 32. So we're still on our kind of in the middle of a five-year average there. Drug offenses were at eight in 2021 compared to three in 2020. Both years are lower than the previous. Comp says that could be due to a lack of festivals. A lot of our drug arrests come during the festival time. So given that we didn't have normal festivals in a sense last year, that may be a reason for the reduction in, in drug arrests if you look overall in the last five years. Case reports were up in 2021 with 29 fraud reports and 115 accident reports. Why these numbers are important is that's just a lot of time. Those are all very time-consuming reports that require our staff to spend a lot of time conducting follow-up. Um, a fraud report may not seem like that much on its face, but it requires a ton of search warrants that have to be written for bank accounts, social media accounts to try to find the person. So it requires a lot of extra time. So the increase in those numbers is just more time that our deputies are at the station doing work rather than being on the street where we would prefer them to be. In 2022, Compt says there have been 32 arrests so far. If that number continues, that'll be pre-COVID numbers that we'll be back up to in our arrest levels. Looking outside the more traditional tasks of law enforcement, Compt says the Marshal's office is looking for more ways to engage with the community. We've been partnering with the communities that care the last few months to kind of host events with high school students. So in February, we hosted um, a dodgeball game, which the students whooped up on the Marshals pretty bad. <laughs> and we last month, we played indoor soccer. So the, the Marshals and and uh, Mountain Village will take the title back on that one. <laughs> Capture the Flag is the game for April. The event will take place next week.
This Monday, the Wilkinson Public Library holds its monthly listening club. It's like a book club, but for albums. Claybrook Penn will lead the April gathering about her record of choice, Dire Straits' self-titled 1978 debut album. KOTO's Matt Hoish spoke with Penn about her selection. I picked this album because I think it is one of these that that lands in my top five or so. And it's they're not necessarily my favorite band. It's that I think this is a great album. There's no skips. It's a taut 46 or so minutes. But this album, I think, really encompasses the whole picture of Dire Straits. Dire Straits is rock and roll, and it's blue-collar rock and roll. They are an English band, but they were not, um, they're not like well-to-do English. They're not royals. Um, They're not titled. (laughs) Um, On this album, the self-titled 1978 album, they're just trying to establish themselves. So they're trying to say, hey, we're a pub band. We play gigs. You know, we're out here playing the clubs. We're not playing arenas. And... Their main goal with this was to get on radio. So they cut a demo. They like pounded pavement and got it into the hands of influential DJs in London and in England in the 70s. It's a very riff-heavy sound for this whole band, but especially this album. Listening to every track, you go, wow, that's a cool one. Wow, that's a good one. And from the first track down to the waterline, and then sort of at the height of the album is Sultans of Swing, their biggest hit, and it remained their biggest hit. It's that sound of the Stratocaster guitar, of the, the bent notes where he, Mark Knopfler plays it in a way that the guitar is its own voice. Now my conductor saw the number 19 She was a honey She was a I remember the first time, but I remember a very like special time, I guess, that I listened to this album. And of all things, it's on a road trip. It was driving between Taos, New Mexico and Telluride, driving through the desert southwest. And Dire Straits is an English band. They're from the city. They're effectively from London. And somehow the music that they make, and especially on this album, really speaks to this sort of desert west environment Um, there is something sort of dry and thirsty about it makes you want to get a pub go to a pub get an ale this is a nearly perfect album to put on in the background of your dinner party and everybody's gonna love at least one song on this album it's maybe only nine tracks but there's something in there for everybody at your dinner table Sun, go down, 
think that it's it's relevant still because there are still and will always be bands of just people who don't have the privilege, they don't have the means, but they have the desire and they have experience and they're pounding pavement and they're playing gigs. And this album is for that person. Claybrook Penn will lead the April Listening Club on Dire Straits by Dire Straits on Monday, April 25th from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Telluride Music Company. More information is available at telluridelibrary.org. Church bell. The banjos and fiddles and dobros will be in town before you know it. Festival passes are sold out for the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, but for those who missed out, hope is not lost to see some epic music. Nightgrass has you covered. Kicking off the weekend on Wednesday night, Nightgrass provides the late-night magic of the Bluegrass Festival. Wednesday, we'll see Elephant Revival. Thursday features Green Sky Bluegrass, Rising Appalachia, Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, and Levent de Nord. On Friday, there will be the infamous String Dusters, Andrew Marlin and the Dukes, the Little Smokies, and Kitchen Dwellers. Saturday has Watch House, Rhiannon Giddens and Francesco Teresi, and Aoife Donovan, Sierra Hull, and Friends. Punch Brothers will close out the weekend on Sunday. Tickets for Nightgrass are on sale and available at bluegrass.com slash telluride. Avian flu has hit Montrose County. This week, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Natural Veterinary Services Laboratory confirmed the virus in a commercial poultry operation. According to the USDA, the cases were first detected at a commercial broiler breeder facility in Montrose County. A 60,000-bird flock was euthanized to control the spread of the virus. The state veterinarian office issued a quarantine order for parts of Montrose and Delta counties to limit movement of birds in and out of the area. The veterinarian office is also urging those with backyard flocks to immediately enhance biosecurity efforts such as decreasing interaction between wild and domestic birds and preventing wild birds from accessing feed. The avian flu is known to decimate flocks within 48 hours. The USDA notes the flu does not present a food safety risk, poultry and eggs are safe to eat when handled and cooked properly, and avian flu has never been detected in humans in the U.S. If you ask Smart Asset, a financial technology company out of New York, San Miguel County has the second most favorable cost of living in Colorado. According to the company, it, quote, identifies the places where average living expenses are most affordable for people living there. The study looked at the baseline cost for living in the area, comparing it to the county's median income. Based on their data, Smart Asset identified the cost of living in San Miguel County at nearly $52,000 a year, with the average per capita income at nearly $94,000 per year. 
San Miguel County, if you ask Smart Asset, lost out only to Pitkin County, with living costs at $69,000 per year and an average income at $155,000 per year. Governor Jared Polis says Colorado will spend $20 million to better prepare for wildfires this summer. As KOTO Scott Franz reports, the announcement comes after high winds and drought fueled several fires in the last week. Mike Morgan leads the state's firefighting efforts. He says the money will reserve more firefighting aircraft and launch a statewide dispatch center to get firefighters on the scene more quickly. It will save lives and it will save property. Uh, we won't catch all of these fires. I wish I could tell you we could, but, but we won't. But we will stop many of them and these resources will reduce the number of fires that exceed our capability. Morgan says he's bringing firefighters into the area from the west slope as a precaution. Fire danger on the front range is more extreme than it's been in over a decade, according to the National Weather Service. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act was first passed in 1990. It provides benefits to those impacted by the nuclear weapons industry. That includes uranium mine workers and those downwind of atomic testing. But the act will expire on July 10th of this year. And there are many alive that still qualify but haven't collected. A new bill expanding coverage is in Congress. Proponents are in a race to pass it. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom spoke with those impacted by radiation exposure about the support they're hoping for. Those sounds are trucks hauling material from the Moab Uranium Mill Tailings Remedial Action Project. The U.S. Department of Energy is cleaning up around 16 million tons of uranium tailings here on the banks of the Colorado River, waste from the Atlas Uranium Ore Processing Facility. Uranium created a lot of wealth in the region and helped the country build its nuclear arsenal during the Cold War, but it came at a price, like those tailings which are radioactive. And it's not only the landscape that was left scarred. My father was a former underground uranium miner, died at the age of 44 years old from lung cancer. And I also worked in the mine while I was in high school down in Colorado. That's Phil Harrison Jr. He heads the Navajo Uranium Radiation Victims Committee. It's been around since the late 70s. Many uranium mines and mills were on the Navajo Nation or used Navajo workers, like Harrison's father. Harrison says that out of five siblings... I think it's only myself, uh, my brother and my sister that knew my dad. The last three, they didn't know their father. And uh, so typical of all the former Navajo uranium workers. He says he's recorded over 400 other former workers in his community in northeast Arizona who have died of lung disease. So we have uh, over 400 widows and we have children that didn't know their father, they didn't know their grandfather. So it's, it's very uh, discouraging, you know, when you go out to my community, there's hardly anyone around these days. Harrison has been involved in pushing legislation to help those impacted by the nuclear industry for decades. He says he helped draft the amended Radiation Exposure Compensation Act over 20 years ago. That amendment included expanded help for downwinders, those that were exposed to fallout from nuclear testing. Mary Dixon thinks that's her. It started because I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which is one of the cancers that's pretty common from radiation exposure. 
I was only 29 when I got that. Doctors removed her thyroid, and then the treatment was more radiation. You drank radioactive iodine to destroy any remaining thyroid tissue. So I had on my hospital bracelet a little emblem that said, caution, radioactive material. A doctor would come to her door and hold up a Geiger counter every day until she was not too hot. When she left the hospital, she was told to avoid pregnant women or share a bed with her husband for a time. Nothing makes you an activist faster than a diagnosis, I always say. Thyroid cancer is especially common for downwinders, and Dixon says the fallout from detonation spread much further than originally thought. If you were driving from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City on US Highway 91, you'd pass through St. George, Utah, population 4,562, just a short way from the state line of Nevada. That's footage from the United States Atomic Energy Commission. The government detonated nearly 1,000 atomic bombs at the Nevada test site. A 1997 study by the National Cancer Institute says that nearly every state experienced some fallout from that testing. It estimates that detonations caused tens of thousands of cases of thyroid cancer around the country. Since the rest of the town was sound asleep, only our night owl saw it, that great flash in the western sky. An atomic bomb at the Nevada test site 140 miles to the west. Dixon has also been working on expanding RECA for around 30 years. She was never eligible for benefits because her northern Utah county wasn't covered. That Cold War had casualties and still has casualties. People are still getting sick. Another issue she wants fixed, RECA only covers those working in mines and mills before 1972. Linda Evers can't receive benefits because she started working in a uranium mill in 76. I started on the labor gang in the mill, which was 90 days of do whatever they needed done, stuff like shoveling shoots out or scraping the acid tanks out or cleaning the yellow cake filters. We just worked everywhere. She was only 18 when she started. She says she then worked in what was called a crusher, that was part of the process to start leaching yellow cake from the ore. Well, I guess it was four and a half years. I got pregnant with my first child that was born in 79 with birth defects that had to be repaired by the time he was two months old. She went back to work for a different company, but it was similar. And then was off to have my second child in 82 that was also born with birth defects. She didn't link the birth defects to the mill at the time. We weren't told at all at any time how radiated we were getting. I had worked out there a couple of years before I ever saw a radon monitoring tag get put in my hard hat. She says those tags which detect how much radiation workers were exposed to were only collected once in the years she worked there. She thinks the owners and regulators knew what the risks to workers' health were. The problem is the protective gear is so expensive and we're, you're running massive amounts of workers through. You can't give every one of them a, a radiation suit because what if he only pans out for a couple of weeks? You wasted all that money. She thinks the radiation that harmed her children also gave her breast cancer and a degenerative bone disease. She helped found the Post-71 Uranium Workers Committee and headed around the country to survey workers like herself. She collected data from Monticello to Tennessee, but she felt ignored by Washington. She says the expanded RECA in Congress now is crucial. 
it would extend benefits for another 19 years, and it would include post-71 workers like herself. Well, it allows us to get the medical care that we need. Your regular family primary health care doesn't really know how to treat lungs that are scarred from radiation damage. She has to travel to Albuquerque for specialty care. Her Medicare doesn't cover the expenses. We were told every day we were doing our part to keep America safe. We were told every day. So these people are patriotic, very, very patriotic people that we feel like we've already given our lives for this country. Harrison on the Navajo Nation is trying to file as many claims as possible in the next two months before the act expires. He says it takes time to get the tests and documents required. Recently, he was helping one former miner who had lung disease. He says in rural and remote parts of the reservation, it's hard to get something as basic as a diagnosis letter. After four months, I finally got that diagnosis letter. So I was able to help him put a claim together. I sent it in. He received a notice a week after he died that, you know, his claim was approved. He says the pandemic hit those on the Navajo Nation with respiratory illnesses especially hard. He lost many former workers that could have received benefits. I feel that the uh, government has done a lot of damage and it took away a lot of our fathers. And my fathers had never seen what the Western world uh, has when they say the uh, American dream. And they never knew what American dream was. They never reached their adult life. Harrison says he's heading to Washington within the month to plead his people's case to lawmakers. Until then, he can only start the claims process for others, even those he knows he can't finish in time. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with a low around 25 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 35 miles per hour. Two to four inches of snow accumulation is possible. Saturday, there's a 40% chance of snow showers with mostly cloudy skies and a high near 40. Saturday night, expect partly cloudy skies with a low around 20. Sunday, there's a 40% chance of snow showers with partly sunny skies and a high around 40 degrees. Sunday night calls for partly cloudy skies with a low around 20. This has been the news for Friday, April 22nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.